One of the things I really like that you said is people will bring you new devices and new gadgets, new hardware. Because you're like one of the most famous hardware guys in the world, having an iPod and iPhone, mm-hmm. which I want mm-hmm. to talk about. And you and you wouldn't want to look at the device. You want to see how can we solve this problem without the hardware. So it's it's almost like you only should do things if you absolutely need to do them. I guess is your is absolutely. Your I learned. You know, I I, I always loved that shiny object being younger, and I was like, oh, that's yeah. cool, that's cool, that's yeah. cool. And and that's what happens. Most engineers and designers think, oh, look at this cool object. It's really fun. But they never thought about the customer journey. They didn't think about really hard they just cared about the the what not the why Still, welcome to the American Optimist, Tony Fidel. Great to have you here, Joe. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. And so, it's really, uh, it's really a treat. You're kind of you're back in Texas. You went to high school here in Dallas, nearby. Yeah, I went to. I, went, I was here for 10th and 11th grade, and a very different experience from going to high school in 9th and 12th grade in Michigan. You know, you, you, you moved around a lot. I read in the book your dad was a Levi salesman, so you guys hopped all around as a kid, huh? Yeah, hopped all around. 12 schools, 15 years. Amazing. And now, and now you were in Silicon Valley for a long time. Now you're in Paris. Yeah, Silicon Valley. Uh, about 26, 27 years. Yeah. You were at General Magic when you were younger, which I'm really jealous of. That sounded like one of the coolest places. I went to PayPal, which wasn't quite the same, but also had like a lot of this crazy talent, right? It's right. Kind, of, kind of related to that. Right, right, so, right. So, so in some sense, it's analogous uh, at the time. And, and it just sounded like the most amazing place. And it sounded like there's just all sorts of focus on like the coolest technology, but then you kind of implied like the business and marketing and customer journey and probably weren't really thought through there. Yeah, I think what happened was, and General Magic was, you know, make, trying to make, you know, when you look back on it, the iPhone 15 years too early. 1989, the original sketch that guy drew up. What, what, what was his name? Who, who drew uh, Mark Peratt. Mark Peratt. And he was an Apple employee at the time mm-hmm. and was saying, you know, it was he had this thing called the Pocket Crystal Project he was doing in secret at Apple and said, I think this is so big and took to John Scully that it needs to be its own standalone company and license its technology to all the biggest consumer electronic companies at the time. Wow. Sony, uh, Panasonic, Motorola, Philips, those 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 kinds of companies. You applied and went there. You used to wear the suit you weren't supposed to wear for your, for your I interview. I applied and I had to beat down the door over a uh, six months to get in there and and just get very, in very persistent just trying to get in trying to get in absolutely because it was i i knew what that team had done in the past i had no idea what they were doing this but was, i knew what the team did in the past and i said whatever it is i have to be there i don't usually like to admit it but this is a little bit like me and paypal i got rejected in my first intern application i tried again the next summer eventually they eventually they let me hey, in. you yeah. know what yeah. um if the if the team doesn't notice that and see that persistence and that insistence uh it's probably not the team you want to work for because it's obviously it was the right team, just like it was the right team for me, even though it was a spectacular failure at General Magic. It was the right team for sure. And you obviously learned a lot through your journey with Phillips and learning how big companies work. And I really liked how you talked about some of like the assholes and the politics and how to deal with these things. Right. And uh, one thing that was pretty unique about how you approached it, and I really enjoyed talking about obviously the book, Build, that did this get published in the last few weeks or when's it coming so out? So Build's been out for about uh, nine days now. Um, it's awesome. Harper Collins. It's Build, an unorthodox guide to making things worth making. It's a mentorship in a box book, um, all about the lessons learned I've had over the last 30 years from my mentors to honor them because most of them had died. And I was like, oh, I wanted to give back. And so that's, there's tons and tons of lessons learned and advice and showing failure and the good sides and bad sides of how we do what we do. And it's not just applicable to tech. But it's applicable to anybody trying to build anything in any in any industry. And you did this for for a nonprofit cause too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so build was about honoring my mentors, but it was also about helping the planet. And so all net proceeds that come to me are going to be five x matched 
by me to go into a climate uh, crisis fund to uh, to go and and give that money to or invest that money in climate crisis businesses, trying to fix the existential problem we have. And any monies that come from those businesses go into climate philanthropic endeavors as well. So this whole thing is all about honoring the mentors and helping the planet and and helping builders to build the next generation of technologies and a greater society, a greater planet, a, and a better health for us all. Oh, definitely. I, re I read the whole thing uh, last night and I just already ordered a bunch of copies from all of our CEOs and people I, I build with. It was awesome. And so, you, but it's one of the things that is unique about how you approach the, the, the politics thing is first of all, you know, rather than engaging in zero sum politics, your group, your crew, as you said, has to be focused on actually creating value and doing the right thing for the company. Absolutely. But, but second of all, it's very rare for someone to say, you know what, if there's a bunch of these political jerks getting together and trying to stop you, you got to make your own crew. And you got and you got pushed back, which I love. You're you're a fighter. You're like, don't let these guys win. Like, build your own crew that's actually doing the right thing and push back on them. Exactly. You know, when you when you run into p politics, um, there's two types of things. There's there's people who are 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 in it for themselves, and there's other people who are in it for the mission. And those people who are in it for themselves usually get with other people. It's kind of like Survivor, right? And they yeah. get together and they do all these tactics and tricks. What you have to do is get a bunch of the rebels, the good the good people, together yeah. and fight them. You can't just let those kinds of cultures exist in 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 societies or even in in your companies. Hundred percent. Every big institution, I think, government institutions, big corporations, they all have have these cabals of you call them antibodies which i use as well antibodies. It's, like, it's like you go in i did a lot of enterprise software so you are if you go in with a much better solution there's always antibodies that try to stop you and keep you out but it's interesting on the inside too you gotta build those cabals i've never been in a big company myself as much so you, so you kind of learn how to navigate that. Yeah, well you had to learn by trial through fire you know a few times you go wait a second you know um this isn't fair this isn't cool whatever and then we a few of us would get together and say no we're gonna fight this in in a positive way but we wouldn't stay there as a group. We were always a team. We were just fighting against these things that were preventing us from delivering a great experience for the customer. And if you right? can't do that and when you shouldn't be there, you should you should go somewhere where you can be. Yeah, if, if you're going to continue to fight politics, you're there to build things, yeah. not to fight politics all day. I, I remember in some of these big companies, like you'd spend 90% of your time just fighting politics and navigating the, the sharks in the waters instead of building great things, right? So, so let's go back to the building great things. You, you were involved in creating the iPod, the iPhone, and then obviously, you know, it started Nest later. Tell me a little about the iPod. Like, how did that come about? Well, the iPod was born out of, um, you know, I had always stayed in devices, right? From General Magic to Philips and then to uh, to Apple. It was all about devices for me and software and systems, actually. It wasn't just devices, but it was systems. And so what I was in the 90s, I was a DJ. So I had I had oh, a cool. lug around CDs, lots of CDs, heavy ones, you know, thousand CDs, and you're like, oh my god! And at Philips, I was doing um, the Philips Velo and Philips Nino. We were the first devices to ever have Audible on them. So we, I was doing audiobooks. So, and I was after, like, so after after General Magic, which didn't quite work, you focus on a business version of this, and, it, and it was, that was the Philips. Right. Devices. It was Philips yeah. was all about making a mobile computing device smaller than a laptop for mobile. Was it kind of like an early BlackBerry in a way? Well, Black. BlackBerry was wirelessly connected. This was more like a, a laptop for email and, and Word and Excel, those kinds God, of things. It's kind of before there was the whole 3G thing, so it had to be something very different. Oh, yeah, yeah. 3G. 3G, 3G was like a decade, come out until 2007. It was like eight. a decade later, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. You know, General Magic was building the iPhone so early, and, and the same thing with Velo Neal, before there was an internet. Before there was mobile, the, the, phones, the infrastructure really. just didn't exist for the stuff to work. There was yeah. no data yeah. infrastructure. There was no, there was no internet. There was no content. So really. You'd have it in your pocket, but it could only connect at through home. a modem. 
throw a modem to like dial up email services, you know, like AOL email. Weren't there these like big giant, sorry, I'm a little bit younger. Weren't there these like yeah, these big giant okay. cell phones back then? Could you, couldn't you just like hook one of them up to one of those or that would No, be there was hard? no, you, you could, but it was really slow, it was just so and, slow. and it wasn't really reliable. So it. it was really landline is with your only choice. Um, and, uh, and it was really just a phone call. There was no data, remote data, unless it was the military or something like that. That makes sense. And so, so, so you, so you built those devices and, 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 and then had audible on them. And then from the audible side, I was like, wait a second, this can be music. And then MP3 showed up at the same time. And I had this DJ thing and I'm like, so there was this pain. And I was like, oh, wait a second, small device, small digital files instead of CDs. MP3 is a format that basically could, could sound really good without using too much space. That was the... Right, you could take, you, you, could, you could compress uh, these, uh, these music files or audio files into something much, uh, much smaller so that you could fit a lot of it into different storage types, whether that was rotating hard drive media or um, flash media. But flash back in that day were, was... Tiny, tiny, tiny. You could maybe get one or two songs. Do people still use MP3s today? Or is there a format? Oh yeah, like MP3s are used everywhere. But everywhere. Now that we have more space. Wouldn't there? But wouldn't people want even a better format to sound a little better? Or you can't. Well, really there tell. are newer and and more what we call lossless versus lossy yeah. uh, uh, compression types. So there's new types of MP3s that just don't compress quite as much. Yeah, there's AAC and FLAC, and there's all kinds okay. of other things. But Got it. but but so and and so now when you download things, you don't know it. But back in the day, it would say, "Do you want to load, download which form of the format of the of Got the of file?" And now we now we now it's just like it. it figures out what you have and downloads the right thing. Got it. And so, and so, and so, how did this go into making? You tried to make your own company with it, with an iPod, basically, and then you. May, could, we were trying trying at Fuse, um, a startup company. We were trying to become the Dell of consumer electronics. So back in that day, there was a home th home theater was new, and digital home theater was new. So, you, but you had to select those speakers from here, the TV from here, the the digital components, those kinds of things from all these different brands, and you had to figure out yourself which cables. So what we wanted to do was be Dell yeah. and create, you know like a, 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 a direct to consumer, select the, 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 the components you want. We'll make sure it's all configured right. But we would make one box that would be that digital music library where you'd have CDs that could you put in. It, it would rip them and turn them into MP3s, put them on a hard drive so you could have all your music in one, one area. And then you'd have a device you could use as well that's carried around. And then, and then over time, that we saw that you would be able to carry it at the very same time I was asked to be a contractor at Apple for the iPod, a new hard drive came out, a 1.8 inch hard drive, a tiny one, credit card size, for, um, um, it was made for laptops. Um, but, it, but we repurposed it for music instead. And she was like, well, we could just care about laptops, but if you wanna do music players, we don't think that that's actually wise because it's rotating media. If you drop it, you're gonna damage the hard drive, right? <laughs> and uh, it was all these crazy things. But so it was, there was always the file formats, there was all this different technology. And then this hard drive showed up at exactly the same week as I, you know, I started consulting, which was really, really so, interesting. So it all kind of fit together. It that's, all that's fit cool. together. And then in 2000, it was, Probably just too hard to raise money. You talk to everyone, and, and you yeah. In two thousand, when we had our own company, uh, when Fuse was there, April two thousand was like today. Now, yeah, we're market hoping, fallout. We're hoping it's not what this goes into the next year, but it might. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Well, it was over exuberance then. It's over exuberance. You know, the last two years for certain industries and certain businesses. It feels like there was more, as you as you mentioned, you had the Pets.com advertising. You sketched up on something. It feels like there was more nonsense back then, slightly, but who knows? Uh, I think uh, you're younger. I was there. I felt yeah. it. 
It's about the same about level the same. of nonsense. So I was pattern recognition. What three years ago when I start seeing this, I'm like, oh, I can feel two thousand uh, coming all over again. I guess there are two hundred fifty thousand dollar monkeys and stuff. So you never know. We're not allowed to make fun of this. <laughs> but yeah, no, no, it's it's definitely different, and it uh, it's, it's very similar but different in a way because it affects so much more. But some of it's in the public markets, most of it's in the private markets. Back in 2000, it was almost all public markets yeah. and not necessarily private. Yeah, very different. Sense. It was like the SPACs, everything was, it was a private market SPACs, everything went SPAC back then. When you talk to Peter Thiel about PayPal, he always says they just barely are able to raise money to survive, just by really pushing really hard at the right times there. And so, but so a lot of things that were good ideas went under and said, so you said just build an apple then instead. Yeah, and then it was, you know, there was no, there was no, uh, there was no money coming in. And, and there's this idea, but remember, Apple wasn't the Apple we know it today. Apple was really struggling. It was suffering, yeah. It was barely break even, yeah. right? And it was only maybe worth four or five billion dollars at the time. All, all of us in the tech world, even then, kind of loved Apple because it was represented something that was really special, though, even though it was a much smaller company at the time, right? Yeah, it was much smaller and it had a market share of 1% or less only in the US. Yeah. It didn't have retail stores, it, it only had the Mac. There was, there was yeah. really nothing else that Apple had at that time. So wow. to say you're gonna go to Apple in in 2001 meant something different and and you're to a company that's not you know like we know it you're like i'm gonna spend and after a decade of failure for yeah. me i'm gonna go spend how much time to build something else at a company that's suffering why is this gonna be successful so it took a while for me to get adjusted and some conversations with steve and others to get me convinced that yeah i should do this even what, though our a company on the outside was suffering what why did you decide to do it because it was a contrarian bet in that you know that time because um, Steve and I talked about it and I said, we can build anything. I'm sure we can build this, this, this device. But what I learned, especially from Philips, and it had a great story, are how are we gonna sell in marketing? At Philips, they just wanted to sell DVD players and TVs. Yeah. Steve, you, you only have so much limited marketing funds. How are we gonna sell this thing? Because you're gonna wanna sell the Mac. And he's like, I'm gonna dedicate all the marketing funds to the iPod for at least two quarters if you deliver and deliver the way we, what we need, you know, high quality way. And so he did that. He, and so he made that commitment to me if I made the commitment to him to deliver it. But you talked about in the book, the first generation, he would only sell to Mac users, right? Right. He Which would is, only sell to Mac users. And, we and, didn't have that discussion at that time when yeah. I signed on, right? Yeah. I figured that, you know, that would be just obvious, you know, yeah. along the route. And so we actually had, to, I'd bring it up and Steve like, yeah. over my dead body. Yeah. And so I still created a skunk works program in the yeah. back. I love it. Uh, to, 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 to bring that together. And then, um, and then that was, that become the, the music match program that showed the way to actually iTunes for Windows and then the iPod for Windows and everything And, and obviously that helped Mac sales, as you mentioned later on eventually, because everyone got exposed to Mac through this. Yeah, instead of a, to buy an iPod was a $2,000 laptop plus a $300 iPod, which $2,300, that's the cost of an iPod, because yeah. nobody had Macs really. Yeah. It was just $300, right? Um, and that was, oh, and then the shuffle came and that was $49, right? And that oh, was your cool. first entry way into Apple. So all of a sudden now everyone knows So Apple. now all of a sudden people could get a taste and said, oh, let me try something else. Let me try something else from Apple. I like this experience, right? I, I thought it sounded totally crazy that you said you only had seven months, I think it was, when you well, first I, uh, when you, to I, launch the first about, version? It was about eight, eight and a half months. Uh -huh. And that wasn't, 
a that wasn't a timeline that was imposed by Steve and the management. It's just you were afraid someone else would come out for the Christmas season with the competitors. You just wanted to. Well, yeah. One is I was afraid Sony was going to come. Yeah. Right. They were the number one in every audio category, home, mobile, audio, everything. Yeah. You're like, oh, God, how are we going to beat them? And if they come with something game over. Right. So we had to get there. The other thing I realized, especially after General Magic and being at Phillips is big companies we, you know, they're talking trying, about they're politics, they're, the antibodies set in. And if you don't meet a goal or you don't, they're going to try to kill it. Or maybe it's a bad quarter, one quarter, like we're seeing now. Yeah. Layoffs happen. Something happens. They're I just like, cut the budget. Yeah. It's like, get it to the finish line as fast as you possibly can. Prove your worth. Before they cut before, you. Before yeah. they even start asking questions. And we surprised everyone that we were ready. So this was like, is this really going to happen? And I'm like, yes, it's really going to happen. And they were like, they became believers because then they started having it. But it, cool. we had to prove ourselves inside this company that was struggling and i i had been i had other projects canceled before oh yeah i didn't want that to happen does that did that did like like increase the innovation with that kind of constraint somehow like were there things you came up with you probably wouldn't have if you'd had three years to do it and had infinite dollars right well that was general magic we had more or less infinite dollars and we had infinite time How, how does how does that work in practice like how does it how are the constraints Make you put better. the you put the constraints on it, so you, everything is better when it has constraints. So you money, time, number of people, and the technology you're going for. But the best way to do the constraints, what I do, and and this is all the story of why, and the and, and you have to have a story for it, is to write a press release, and that press release before you even get started sets it. the constraints. Who's your audience? What are the key three features? Maybe four yeah. features, no more than three or four, because yeah. the consumers can't understand it anymore. More than that yeah. do those three or four and then you say the price the time all those other things you, you you call it out it's a real shorthand form and you use that as your as your measuring stick of oh is this feature in or out do we really need this feature i love it and yeah. and then you can actually separate everything because and you can also say oh well this feature's not ready yet and you're like the story falls apart the press release falls apart we have to delay to get that feature in yep um so that we can have the right the right uh introduction of a v1 product that the world's never seen no that's really cool i mean do you also you also go talk to customers with these things ahead of time then when you're, when no. you're doing that or you don't no i no, guess i learned that from phillips too don't do that why, why not well it depends if you're a business to business customer you know if you're a b2b uh type of business you can go talk to your that's more, some early adopters. that's customers. more my that's more my background is we do like both almost not quite the PR, but the like, here's, we basically sell it to them with, with pictures like Figma or whatever it's, ahead of time and say, here's what we're doing for you. Here's why, what do you need? It, and then we iterate on it. Exactly. And that's, that's great because the business customers, you're solving their pain. You're that you don't have pain. all the, de- you don't, you don't know all the details. Whereas when you're doing a consumer electronics device, the cost, the consumer is not like a business person you're looking for them, a need. You're tell them what they want. You're going to tell them. You have to want. tell them and show them and, and, and walk them through that full customer journey and message. Mm-hmm. So you have to build the product and build all the marketing, everything, so they get the full experience. This kind of, this kind of goes to the gut versus data thing you talk about in the book. Exactly. You, you can't you can't A/B test this stuff with consumers. You just got to kind of know what they want. You, for you some have things. to trust your gut for V ones. For, V1s, for the disruption one. For the disru- first disruption yeah. for the uh, version one, many, many opinion-based decisions. Yep. I like, that right? fr- I like that framework. First disruption, and then it evolves based on learning. And then you yeah. can do, you're going to have some opinion-based decisions as you go on, but you're going to have data-driven decisions. And just like in the iPod, bringing it to Windows, Steve didn't want to do that. was his opinion. We couldn't refute that opinion with version one. Mm-hmm. But in, by version three, we saw that the sales weren't going well. Yep. Right? 
And we're like, the data is showing we need to bring it there. And yeah. so it was irrefutable that that needed to happen. And so, so then, then that happens. So you overcome, so, you can overcome the gut with data on certain things. Yeah. yeah, on certain things when you've you know had it had it, a trial by fire in the market by customers who would pay for it or maybe not pay for it. So one one of the things I really like that you said is people will bring you new devices and new gadgets, new hardware. Because you're like one of the most famous hardware guys in the world, having an iPod and iPhone, mm -hmm. which I want to mm -hmm. talk about. And you and you wouldn't want to look at the device. You want to see how can we solve this problem without the hardware. So it's it's almost like you only should do things if you absolutely need to do them. I guess is your is absolutely. Your I learned. You know, I I. I I always loved that shiny object being younger and I was like, oh, that's yeah. cool, that's cool, that's yeah. cool. And and that's what happens. Most engineers and designers think, oh, look at this cool object. It's really fun. But they never thought about the customer journey. They didn't think about really hard. They just cared about the, the what, not the why. So most hardware devices startups are doing probably aren't even necessary just because it's very rare to find one of the ones that are needed. Yes, a lot of them, a lot of them are like that because it's just a fun hobby and investors get all excited over it because it's like, ooh. Isn't this cool? But really, you have to go back to first principles and go, why are you doing this? And is this absolutely necessary? Because the friction is so high. But if it is absolutely necessary, that is an incredible barrier to entry. And it, it really can set you apart because most people won't go down that road. So we just do a trial by fire on that to make sure it's something that's really necessary before you commit tons of time and capital and, and a lot of risk so, around so, it. So, so you did all these generations of the iPod, kept getting better and better. With, and, and how did the iPhone come about? How did you guys decide that was necessary and possible? Well, there were giant footsteps behind us called the mobile phone industry. They were mm -hmm. watching the success that was iPod, just r rampaging through. We were 85% market share at the time. And the market kept growing and so, growing. So these guys, growing. these phones were all going to become iPods and compete with you in a sense. Well, right. They were starting to get music functions. They already had cameras on it and they had some uh, color screens. They were doing photos, right? Interesting. And, so, and they were adding music to it because they were just memeing, copying what the iPod pod was doing yeah. but they were doing it like the mp3 players before the ipod right they yeah. were just you know not they were making it hard so we're like oh my god if they actually start getting they there it out we're in trouble and and customers only want to carry one thing in their pocket or purse right which are they going to pick it's, it's so interesting so this kind of came from like the creative destruction angle where you were going to get attacked and therefore you had to attack back and it, well we, not just attack back but we had to cannibalize ourselves yeah, yeah. You had, so to, you, had attack, was, you had to attack yourself too. Yeah, we had to attack you, ourselves. They're attacking you. You had to attack yourself better. Yeah. Exactly, and do yeah. it better, and and beat them at the same time, and beat our the products that we had there. So it was the iPods that we had at the time. So really, there was three different projects going on at the time, which was a iPod plus phone, which was looked like a class iPod classic with a wired headset, and that's how you do your 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 phone calls. There was a full screen video iPod with a virtual click wheel. Yep. So because we were doing videos in the uh, iTunes Music. Store, store at that time, music and movies and that stuff, and people wanted a full screen. And then there was a project over on the Mac side to create a tablet Mac with multi-touch interface. So you guys then so, so you guys realized all ought to be one. Yeah. Then over time, we found out the, the rotary dial as the iPod plus phone was a rotary dial phone. It yeah. was not good when you want to yeah. dial a phone number. And we tried very hard to get to make that work. The, the video-based iPod was great, but when it was single touch, didn't have anywhere near the power of the multi-touch. So it was like, okay, we got to get that touch technology onto the video iPod with a really great interface uh, and keyboard, virtual keyboard, because the BlackBerry was at the time, right? The CrackBerry, yeah. everybody had to have that. Yeah, that's what I was using then too. Right, but it was yeah. just a messaging machine. Yeah. And then um, and, and then combine it with incredible apps, right? And that was a different operating system, a whole, it was a, a very, very stripped down and augmented Macintosh OS yep. because it, 
it was just much too big. Well, here you wanted to buy Android, which is fascinating. I didn't, I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, that that's in the book. I got a, I got a couple of calls uh, um, uh, from Andy Rubin at the time, who I worked with at General Magic, yeah. working on Android before Android was bought by Google. Yeah, and so that was really like Steve. We should listen. We should listen. He to was this. a little bit stubborn about certain things. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. You know, he didn't want to say the idea came from somewhere else. Probably, um, not that we we had we you know or someone could claim it. Um, but um, at the end of the day, who knows what would have happened if Android would have been absorbed into Apple or something would happened, or even, we changed the strategy would have been up on it. Even iPhone. more dominant. In some ways, maybe, in some ways, maybe it's good for the world that there were two horses or something. You, you always know? need competition. It yeah. always makes you. It makes you hungry. It makes you. You yeah. always got to have that that enemy. As, right? as a consumer, I kind of like the Google bought it, and then the world has these different. Comp- but as Apple, you probably should have bought it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. They, yeah. you, you just never know where these things go. But uh, I'm glad that uh, you know. There's always that foil and that making it better. It, it just seems it's amazing how it all came together. Like there happened to be this glass that was developed a long time ago that was good enough because otherwise it really wouldn't have worked without that you know glass from 50 years ago, right? On, oh, you mean the, the you the mean gorilla, the gorilla glass? gorilla glass? Just all these pieces that you had. Well, it together. was kind of like the iPod when the, the hard drive fell out of the sky and then boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Like I was able and, and run around and like, oh my god, there's a process over here yeah, that I could take and I could bundle it with this and then this, this. And I was like, oh my god, we could do it. It was just like barely possible. It was barely possible but possible enough yeah. to yeah. to get that v1 experience and that was the same thing with the the the, the iphone you know um the first generation but obviously it has grown up significantly since then you know the the joke was on the iphone it was the it was the greatest computer or excuse me the iphone was the greatest thing except for a phone right because <laughs> the phone yeah. really sucked because we were learning right of course by figuring out what to do with how of to course. how to make good cameras even you know, so there was a lot of lessons learned, but now it's, you know, you know, the best product or uh, the top three products in the world for, for this kind of device. So D- definitely. And, and so this whole time you were doing this in the back of your mind, you were you were annoyed by thermostats and by, by the whole energy thing. I guess that's it's kind of interesting because it, it obviously came about because it was something that you were just thinking about playing with. I think like you said everyone in Silicon Valley tried to hack their home. You know, at some point it was. An yeah, yeah, especially venture yeah. capitalists. I would go over their yeah. homes and they would sheepishly. Yeah. I go, what's that on their wall? And they go, uh, they wouldn't talk about it. I'm like, oh, that looks like a Crestron device or something. Like Don't tell me about it. It almost got me divorced. It cost me $250,000 and it still doesn't work. Yep. I hate it. Right. And I was like, that was the perfect pitch for the VCs. Right. I was like, you know, that thing you put in your home that you were sold to build a good odds that never worked. And you were like, you spent so much money. You almost got divorced over it. And they're like, how fast can I write you a check? Right. That Because we were trying to solve a lot of those problems that those those uh, mythical stories were told to those customers. <laughs> no, and, and, and it was, I mean, it's a problem that bothered me too. I hate with these legacy companies, these broken things in your home that don't really work. So I think so. It's so when you when you went after that, that was that was your first time actually building a successful startup. Ironically, she'd build all these successful things inside of other companies. Well, well yeah, and and before that, during uh, high school and college, I had startups. You don't then. start things. I, guess, I had startups true. then, but they were not like you know they were you know big fish, small pond kind of fun things. There were things that were working and creating value, but they weren't multi billion dollar. Wins. No, but, no, yeah, no, 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 yeah. no. But uh, they were definitely uh, uh, you know, seminal in my life, you know, and, and they had a learning experience. But yeah, but Nest was that thing where I was like, um, I think this is the right idea, you know, because it had been chasing me um, for a decade. And I said, this has got to happen. Yep. No one's done it yet. All the incumbents are big, dumb and slow. Mm-hmm. Time to make this time to make this product. And you know what? I want to show I think I know what I'm doing because I made those companies in those 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 little mm-hmm. those divisions inside of those big companies. I think we can do this outside. 
and uh, and got uh, you know got an amazing team. Um, Matt Rogers joined me as a co-founder. Yeah, you said you said you wouldn't have done it if you hadn't had someone like Matt to get going. Right, he got, exactly. He kind of made it possible. Yeah, well, Matt, you know, after going through ten years of failure and ten years running on a on a, a, a you know a sprinting marathon, yeah. right? With you. He starts to go, hey, do I really need to put the time and energy in this together? And I know how hard it is, especially through the failure that was fused because of 2000. You kind of only want to build these if you have to. They're, they're a lot of work. Or if it's just, just like yeah. hardware. Yeah. <laughs> you just only want to do it if you have to. Yeah. But you really want to have a partner. And that's the kind of companies we love to invest in when they really have a co-founder. Not too many. No, no more than three, hopefully just two. It's hard when it's only one, but having that, those co-founders that can work together when one's up, pull the other, when one's down, the, the, the one, other one pulls them up and they can, they can work together. Cause it's very different than when you have employees or board members, right? When you have two founders, it's, it can be magical if they really complement each other in a, in a great way. And, um, and that's what Matt did. He was that, that younger version of me that I saw myself in him. And he was like, let's go for it. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to handle this part of the business. You're going to handle all the engineering. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go and learn about this stuff because I really needed to do hands-on marketing and, so and those kinds of things. I'm curious to hear in retrospect, so there's a lot of markets where there's like a big gap, but it's just really hard to break into. I think of like hearing aids, for example, there's like all these crappy ones that dominate the market, but sure. the channels are just really hard to break exactly. into. And so this is just, that, that would have seemed like this kind of market to me where you could build something way better, but it's just so hard to, to sell it. And, and when you were looking at the market and thinking about that, was was that something that was slowing you down? You were worried about that? or, or, oh, or, or? No, absolutely. It was an incredible worry. Um, in fact, we had to do special parts of the design to get around the channel problems. So to be clear, almost all thermostats were sold through the HVAC or yeah, air pay, conditioning they, yeah, they, yeah, they channel. They pay the guys. To do, they pay the guys and the guys would come into your house and they'd come into your beautiful house and they go, oh, that thermostat's a thousand bucks. Oh, yeah, and they would go there. to another's house and they go, that's 150 bucks. It's the same yeah. damn thing, right? Because there was no price transparency. The customers had no knowledge or any customer choice, right? They didn't know. They just got what they were given yep. and paid what they were, were told to pay. And so what we want to make sure there was consumer choice. So we had to go around that whole channel and we had to develop a product that could be self-installed. We thought only 60% would be self-installed. So um, so we had to make our own custom screwdriver, make the whole journey, this whole I, onboarding. I love, I love the custom screwdriver as like a customer delight thing that you talk about. It's really, it's really interesting because that would have been unintuitive to me if you just say it, but then when you explain how it makes people so happy with you, it, and it becomes part of your brand. It's it really becomes cool. part of the brand and it lives on afterwards because it's a tool you can continue to use You know, uh, each week when it sits in your, your desk drawer and your kitchen junk drawer or whatever it was because it was a special thing that didn't look like any other screwdriver right and so um and every year after that when we rev the product you know operations and finance would go we got to remove it and i'm like no that's our brand that's a symbol of what we do here and why it is it's but it's two dollars it's a dollar fifty or whatever it is like no we're gonna do it and you know it was kind of one of those over my dead body things totally no it's, it's such, <laughs> it's, does google still do that do they still do that? I, I think they've taken it out on most products yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, look, I, we're in the, we're in the, I don't want to stay optimistic. Yeah, no, of course. I want to ask about Google just really briefly. Sure. Because, no, no, because it's totally fine. It, it, it's it does, in the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it does seem like it does seem like a really hard culture for outsiders to come in and work with. And it seems like it seems like really hard for people who've worked there to work at startups sometimes because they, they, they learn the wrong lessons, is my impression. Is this, is this what you experience as well? Yeah. Um, actually, it is. What you just said is very true. What happens is is the environment which they have and the culture they created was one that was born out of 
um, abundance. And the abundance has not stopped. There's it like, started yeah. and it continued. It was yep. always up and to the right. They've never this, had a near-death moment. They saw this money machine. So there's a certain adversity they haven't experienced. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, look at Apple. It's gone through the roller coaster. Steve went through the roller coaster. Yeah. The leaders, you know, Sundar, I don't know exactly, but Larry and Sergey, they never had to go through the ups and downs. They never saw this, right? And so, and the company's only been up and to the right. And, you know, maybe it always will be, but I also know that, this is life and life yeah. there's every single company and every single person there's always this you know the the arc you see you of, see you, you of, see a lot of growth of and death you see a lot of your success tied to the adversity you experience at other places and oh absolutely you constraints yeah. you have to that was what we didn't have constraints in general magic right yeah. it was kind of like an early google in a way <laughs> to tell you yeah. It, yeah, in terms of the culture that's right and then you learn you're like that you can't do that if you want to if you want to create something that's really successful and you get feedback from the marketplace you got to ship and you got to have those constraints to get it there because the market moves, the technology market moves so quickly and it gets quicker every, every year that if you're not getting out and talking to your customers right away when you have something and you wait three years, the market shifts totally. And what happened to General Magic, one of the big things was that the internet happened yeah. during those four years and we were totally off you're, mark. You're off, you're totally off somewhere off else. Mark. You, you, you talk a lot about how building a company is about understanding human nature, which seems, it seems to tie to these things. Like it's, 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 people, there's always parts of human nature, but it seems like people thrive better when, when they have some kind of pressure and some kind of adversity well but people grow under people grow under positive pressure right yep. you have kids you understand you have yeah. to you have to push them to grow right yeah. teams have to be pushed to grow right individuals have to be pushed to grow even leaders great leaders look steve had a mentor right i have mentors the, the best leaders in the world even if they might be the highest paid ceos or whatever most successful ones they are usually there because they also have mentors who, who will actually can, because nobody else will challenge them. They have people who will challenge them around them to keep them, uh, you know, sharp. If you don't, you know, you're just gonna, you're gonna end up ungrounded. One thing I noticed you keep mentioning in the book is you're, is you're, 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 you, you're really loathe to say something is micromanaging because there are there is micromanaging that's bad, but there's a lot of types of things that are pushing people, but it's not micromanaging as necessary. You seem to differentiate. Yeah, so those. so pushing people in a positive way, not bullying people, not demeaning people, or whatever, critiquing their work, but not judging them, and only those things of the work that touch the customer. Mm -hmm. Not every single thing they do or whatever it is, but the things that matter to the customer that matter to then bring that to really story. Look, look at those. Then details. you look at that and you, yes. And you know what? I, and it's in the book. Yes. You can be a mission driven asshole and go after those things. And mm -hmm. other people go, oh, I hate that. It's like, no, that's, that sets the tone for how you build all kinds of other things that, that, in the organization to uphold the voice of the customer and that experience through everything, all the trials and tribulations of creating something. That was the example of Steve Jobs using a magnifying glass. Look at the pixels because it's, it's a customer thing. So then you, you have to check it. Yeah, you have to check it. So there's nothing wrong with being that if you're a leader. You just can't bully people. You can't demean people. But you do definitely um, lord over those things that really matter to the customer. So, so you had some of the most amazing mentors and now you're a mentor to, to a lot of builders. You're spending your time. You're, you're, you're investing. Are you you're advising companies as well? Or are you we call it? ourselves mentors with money. If we, we, ad, we only invest if we advise and we only in, uh, advise if we invest. So we have over 200 companies around the world doing deep tech, um, uh, really hard technology to help the planet, help societies or help our health. And so we really focus our time on that because what we do is we're not all, you know, we're technical, yeah. but we're mostly storytellers. 
And what we do is we take help those researchers, engineers, uh, scientists to help them tell a much broader story of how this disruption that they have is going to impact the planet, right? Not just, isn't this cool? And, and, and convince the other geeks around us that those yeah. are cool, but let's do the mass media. Let's show everybody where this is going and where, where it can, what it can become. And that's what we really love to do is bond up and partner with those entrepreneurs and bring that story and help them tell it in the biggest way possible. I love that. I found that all my companies, if there's a mission that inspires people, then that you should get the best people and they work much harder on it. Exactly. Yeah. It helps with recruiting. It helps with the best financiers, best partners. And obviously get, it gets that customer message out there much more broadly. So, so we started this podcast to push back against a lot of like cynicism and pessimism about the world right now. Cause there are, there's are so many cool things people are working on. Absolutely. You know, I really believe we can solve a lot of these problems that we're faced with if we, if we approach it, you know, with this type of approach, what, what are, what are a few of the, or what we give, we give an example of a couple of the really cool companies that make you optimistic right now. Well, well look, I, we have over 200 and you know, when you see all 200 entrepreneurs innovating and you're looking at what they're doing and why, and, and, and the missions they're on, you can't not be hopeful. Is there, is there a problem you're more optimistic on than the average person because you've seen some of the solutions that you're working on? Yeah, right I'm now? seeing things like, you know, in the hydrogen economy and changing not, not hydrogen necessary for transport, but hydrogen for creating materials. It's a better business. It's a better business model. You could actually make higher profits if you use hydrogen instead of using the petro-driven stuff that we do today. You can make a better company, better product. Um, we have a company called Menlo Micro. And what Mineral Micro is, is they're having the transistor moment for the relay. So vacuum tubes, there was vacuum tubes of the day, and then the transistor moment came. Mm -hmm. And then that started Moore's Law, and that's where we are with this. Well, relays were developed around the same time, those open-close switches. And it's for everything for electrification and for wireless signals. We use them everywhere, but they haven't really changed in 150 years. We now have the trans transistor moment, and, and it's a MEM switch that does power and RF. And it's low cost, it's built in sem semiconductor processes. It's been, tried, it's been tried to come into life now for 40 years. We finally cracked the code, we're in production, and now we're working with the American government, um, the feds and state governments. We're building our own semiconductor factory wow. to build them, because let me give you just one example. With this switch, if you go, it's like 60% of all energy produced on the planet today is lost in inefficiency. In India, six to 8% of all electricity produced is consumed by home ceiling fans, just ceiling fans, six to 8%, depending on the season. So with this one switch, that's, you know, very cheap, you can actually now cut that by 50%. Wow. So you're now only consuming three to 4% of that electricity in that country for these ceiling fans without any change in the product, any change in comfort or anything. How many other things can we do like that to just kill the inefficiencies? We don't have to change our lifestyles and all go live in caves. Let's go find the waste and fix the waste problems. Not just sit here and say we have to change everything. We do have to change lots of things. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. Because um, we have to get rid of CO2 emissions and methane emissions and plastics and stuff like that. But we can also do things without having to change the way we live in support of a better planet. Amazing. Well, Tony, thank you so much for, for joining us. So, yes, you're an amazing mentor and builder. And, and that's an optimistic note to leave him on. Appreciate Great. it. Great. Hey, thanks, Joe. Great to be here.